Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Three years ago, when my son Carlos was still in high school, my wife Esther and I were suffering through a bad parent-teacher conference. It was a grades issue. We all knew that my son Carlos was bright and capable, but it was kind of an ongoing problem that he wasn't living up to his potential in his classes. We were stressed out about it, like parents always are in these situations. And it was kind of tense in the car as we were coming home that day. And finally, Esther, who's an optimist by nature, she kind of broke the ice by saying something that she hadn't said before about the situation. She said, you know, we need to think about this old problem in a completely new way. And I said, I'm all ears, sweetheart, because I'm at the end of my rope here. And then she said, at least we know he's not cheating. The whole point of doing something and applying yourself is thinking that it gives you purpose and meaning. And the truth is, Carlos didn't find very much purpose in what he was doing in school. Now here's a kid who grew up in suburban Washington, D.C. He went to a good prep school, but he didn't like studying. College, it seemed to him, and frankly, it seemed to me too, wasn't for him, at least not for now. What did he like? He liked to be outdoors. He liked to work with his hands. He wanted to do something where he could see the product of his work, something that would give him meaning. What would it be? We finally figured something out. Work he's totally engaged in for 12 hours a day, six days a week. In fact, he's so into it, it's even changed what he thinks of as fun. So, so do, do, do the turkey call for me. All right. Meet my son, the farmer. How far do you have to go to find a job that you like? I'm going to get back to Carlos later in the show and share the story of how we found him a job that he actually loves. And we need to love our work as much as we need to love our family and friends. Work is where we spend most of our time. Well, maybe you spend more time sleeping than you do at work, but if you're like me, that's not even true. The people that you see at work, by the way, you see even more than your family members. It's a complete waste to do something that you dislike or hate if you can possibly avoid it. One of the things that we need to do as a vocation is to find the work that we love that speaks to us, that unlocks our hidden desires, that makes us better than we were before. That's a goal I think all of us should pursue. Hi, I'm Arthur Brooks, and this is the second season of The Arthur Brooks Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This season, it's all about love, why we need it, and how to get it. And this episode is all about work. 
why it's important to love your job, and if you don't, how you can change that. I love my job, partly because I sort of made it up myself. I say you would love, have to love your job because if you don't, I mean, you're gonna, just gonna get tired of it in your life, and you, you know, you won't feel like you accomplished something. That's what I would think. I work for clients who don't bring more joy into the world. They just bring more websites that sell things. It's a good job. I really enjoy it. Well, um, I just retired about two years ago. I loved it. You know, and it was successful, and we helped people. <laughs> no. I am a network engineer that now is focusing on automation. I do enjoy that kind of work. I don't enjoy my current job. If you don't love your job, you're not alone. Many people really aren't engaged with their work. How we engage with our job, our work, how we feel about our workplace, that matters a lot. Employers have started to pay attention to this too. For the last couple of decades, the Gallup Polling Organization has done a lot of work to study how engaged employees are with their jobs, and not just in the US, but globally. Employee engagement helps companies predict employee productivity and happiness. I think it's also important to understand this so we can figure out whether or not we're on the right track as a society. So I talked to Jim Clifton, CEO of Gallup, about what they find when they measure engagement at work. When we look very deeply into that, we find three groups of people. One is that are engaged, and for the world, that's 15%. What does engaged mean? I'm just going to oversimplify and say you love your job. And then down at the bottom, you get about 25% that hate their company, <laughs> hate their boss, hate their job. So you got love up here, and you got hate here. So... You've got the people who love it and the people who hate it. They're really disengaged and then the actively disengaged. It's 15% of the love side worldwide, 25% on the hate side worldwide. Mm -hmm. In the United States, the love percentage is? 30. And the hate is? 20. Okay, good. So we're, we're doing a lot better than the worldwide averages. The countries where the hate part is really, really big or the biggest is Japan, China, and India in your data. In, in big cut, yeah. The United States... Uh, as a, uh, compared to the rest of the world, we we're we back. tend to love our jobs. Tw we're twice as likely to love our jobs, yeah. and we're about half as likely to hate. And our the, jobs. and it's and there is a slow, strong drift up of uh, people who love our jobs. Who love our job? In the Very slow. Yeah, I'm going to say over. I'm going to say, but it's 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 small. But 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 think of it in terms of like unemployment. So little numbers mean a lot. Yeah. But it's gone from about thirty to thirty three over the last. Oh, that's good news. It's very good news. That's really good news. We're pulling up the average in the world. It's uh, okay. So mm -hmm. and then what's the group in the middle called? So um, not actively disengaged, hate, or highly engaged, love. Who are the people in the mm -hmm. middle? So we're not engaged. And that's sixty percent. Mm-hmm. So sixty percent is just kind of. You know, and that's the low hanging fruit. All right, and they're just kind of doing their jobs, getting it done. It wouldn't bother them to change jobs very much. They don't mm -hmm. feel a big connection to their companies, but they're not subverting anything, and they're not a big problem. Mm -hmm. So those are the folks. You can that move them up here. You really can if you do if you do things right. Um, what should CEOs be doing? So, so I asked our chief scientist Jim Harder. I said, well, "What do you think is the biggest discovery that we've ever made with all this stuff on workplace all around the world and all, all of that?" But he said, in the, in the workplace, all of those bad and good things that you want, they're tied to safety, they're tied to productivity, they're tied to how much health care you need, they're tied to everything. 
And he said, 70% of the variation of these people can be explained by one thing. Hmm. Who's their manager? A psychologist at Princeton University named Daniel Kahneman did work with his colleagues about the things in a person's day that give them the most unhappiness. And one of the things he surveyed for, it was, by the way, it was a survey of women in the workforce. And he was asking, among other things, who are the people you least like to see in the day? Who are the people that give you personally the greatest unhappiness in your day? Turns out, number one unhappiness-provoking interaction with a person is your boss. People hate spending time with their bosses. They, maybe they just don't like being bossed, or maybe their bosses are bad, but man, that really, really gave me pause because I'm a boss. <laughs> I'm the president of a company. And I always thought when I sat down at lunch that people were really happy to see me. But then I read that survey, and now I'm you know, having lunch at my desk a lot. We're going to take a quick break now. But when we come back, we're going to talk about managers and more with Adam Grant. Work-life balance, what millennials want from a job, and what to do when you absolutely hate your job. That's when we're back from the break. One of the great things about doing this show for me is that it gives me an excuse to call people I've always wanted to talk to and whose work I admire and ask them about their work. The next conversation is exactly an, an, an example of that. I get to talk to Adam Grant. I've admired Adam Grant and his work for a long time. Adam Grant is the Saul P. Steinberg Professor of Management and a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. He has a PhD in organizational psych from the University of Michigan. Now, most of our listeners know him not because of all those academic credentials, but because he writes best-selling books. He's been the author of three New York Times bestseller by my count, at least including the number one bestseller originals. And his books have sold over a million copies and have been translated into 35 languages, uh, which... As somebody who writes books, I have to tell you, that's just amazing. He also is the host of Work Life, which is a TED original podcast. Hi, Adam. Hey, Arthur. Great to be here. You know, we have met briefly in person, but uh, we haven't actually had an opportunity to talk um, about our work, specifically about your work. And I've been looking forward to doing that, and specifically in the context of this season of The Arthur Brooks Show, which is all about love. And this episode is all about love of work. And you know an awful lot about that. How did you get interested in this kind of subject as a psychologist? I feel like hindsight is always twenty twenty, but the probably the the most coherent story I can piece together is I grew up with two parents who were really passionate people, but neither of them loved the jobs that they were doing. What did they do? Uh, my, so my dad was a lawyer, my mom was a teacher, and I you know I, I they, they were both very good at their jobs. They they clearly you know liked aspects of them, but they were so much more into their hobbies. Uh, you know, my mom loved exercising. My dad would fly planes. And it just struck me as backward that they spent the majority of their waking hours doing something that was not that exciting to them. So they had, when you were growing up, they, they basically worked for money. Is that what you're saying? And their passion was, uh, no doubt, <laughs> yeah. their avocations were more, more satisfying to them than their vocation? Yeah, I think so. And I guess I absorbed some of that. I, I found out when I, uh, when I decided that I was going to major in psychology that 
uh, that my dad had been a psych major in college and my mom had been a psych minor and I, I never knew. But, hmm. you know, I, I grew up with, with some of the language in the house. Like, you know, I, I thought regular people talked about self-fulfilling prophecies. <laughs> so yeah. I guess the, the seeds were planted. So you were interested, it's, it's kind of a, f- a family interest in its way, is how to, how to love your work. Um, do you think most people love their work? No, definitely not. Uh, you can, you know, you can look at the the latest Gallup surveys for for some exact statistics, but in the vast majority of people uh, will will tell you that you know work work is something that they do because they have to do it, not because they're excited to do it. Uh, there there is a little paradox there. Uh, so I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's work on flow, mm-hmm. and you know fl- flow is this this state of of optimal absorption where you get totally immersed in in whatever you're doing. And Csikszentmihalyi found that that work is actually one of the places where people find the most flow. Right. So I've never known what to make of that. You know, on the one hand, people say, I don't love my job. But, you know, when I go there, I am able to get sort of sucked into to something where I lose track of time. And those can be very rewarding experiences. But uh, I don't think we have enough of them. And I think that it's it's actually a major social problem that that so many people are disengaged at work. Yeah, there's kind of a paradox because, you know, we, we had Jim Clifton uh, the CEO of Gallup on the podcast to talk exactly about that you know those work engagement numbers that are that are kind of in, kind of alarming because so many people are disengaged from their work and yet we also know that almost the worst thing that can befall you is losing your job even losing a job that you don't like what's that all about well i think for most of us work is is a source of identity and mastery and belonging and so, you know, if, if you lose your job, a, a couple things happen. One, you have to answer the question, who am I now? It's, it's really the first question that people ask you when you meet them, right? At least in the U.S., <laughs> the, the standard way to introduce yourself is to say, hey, I'm Adam, you know, this is what I do. And, you know, and ask the person you're meeting, what do you do? Right. And if you can't answer that question, you're, you're sort of in a tough position. Hmm. And then, you know, work is, is a place where a lot of people are able to build and exercise their competence and skills. Uh, it's it's a place where they have a community of people uh, who you know they feel connected to, um, and I think for many of us too, you know, other other than family and maybe religion, uh, work is the biggest source of meaning in our lives, hmm. and you know to lose that sense of purpose and structure is pretty disorienting. What's the number one predictor of loving your job? Well, I think there, there's actually a lot of debate about this, and I think it's it's messy to study because. We we never know, you know. I, I think there's a strong case to be made that autonomy is is probably the most important factor. That if you get to make choices about what you work on, and how you do it, and who you get to work with, then you know if you don't love your job, it's your own fault, and <laughs> you can mm-hmm. just redesign it. Hmm. Uh, but you know, how many doses of autonomy do you need uh, to equate to you know a sense of meaning or purpose, which we also know is is hugely influential? I don't really know. Uh, I think I think Dan Pink did a nice summary of of a lot of what we know in his book Drive, uh, and boiled down you know mo- most of of intrinsic motivation at work, which is the way that a lot of us would would define loving your job, uh, as as being driven by autonomy, mastery, purpose, and then I would add this idea of connection or belonging. I, I haven't con- seen a convincing horse race yet to say one of these factors is more important than the others. I, I think we actually need to some degree all of them. One thing I wanted to ask you is something that I've noticed. I'm in my early 50s, and, you know, I work with a lot of people in their 20s and 30s. And one of the things that I've noticed that's a big difference between people my age and people who are really accomplished professionals but in their 20s these days is that they have a lot more hobbies than I did. What amazes me is that, you know, young people, millennials, they, they do 
stuff on the side. I mean, they, you know, play music and they go out a lot and they just, they have hobbies. It's weird. Um, you know, fly fishing. I don't know. I've never had a hobby <laughs> in my life. I have zero hobbies. You know, it's uh, in my, my work has been whether I was, you know, I was working for a long time as a French horn player and then I was an academic and now I, you know, run a think tank. It's completely absorbing. I've never worked less than 70 or 75 hours a week. And the idea of hobbies, I don't like them. I don't want hobbies. Is there something wrong with me, doctor? <laughs> I'm not that kind of psychologist, unfortunately. Only a kind of psychologist that can't help me. Can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're beyond help, Arthur. I think, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I assume you still play the French horn. Hasn't that become a hobby? No, I stopped. I stopped after my last concert. You just cut off cold turkey. Totally. I mean, my last concert was in, in the 1990s, wow. and I put it down and put it in the case, and I picked it up to 20 years later filming a documentary just for 20 minutes, and that's been it. Well, look, I, I'm a skeptic in general on generational differences, at least when it comes to, you know, to fundamental values. Uh, I think that a lot of what we attribute to generation is actually just age and life experience. Uh, so I don't, I don't know where you're going to fit into this puzzle, but I, uh, I, I really like Jean Twenge's work uh, where she tries to tease these things apart. And what she does is she gets surveys that were done of, of high school seniors and college seniors uh, every decade since the 60s. And so you can ask, you know, what was an 18-year-old Gen Xer versus Boomer versus Millennial like? And the same at, at 21. And what she finds is we basically all want the same things out of work. Mm. <laughs> so we, we all want a job that's interesting and challenging and meaningful uh, that, you know, allows us to, to gain a sense of, of prestige and status uh, that helps other people, that gives us a community and that provides us with a life outside work. Uh, and we roughly want those things in the same order, regardless of what ge generation we're from. She does find, though, that there is um, there is a millennial preference for uh, for more leisure time, and it's become more important to younger people. For, I guess it's become more important to them to have a life outside work. And I wonder if that's I, I don't know which way causality goes. Is it that you know millennials have more hobbies, and therefore they say, hey, you know, I don't I don't want my job to eat up my life. Or is it that millennials are, are more drawn to saying, look, I want to find, you know, meeting and self-expression beyond work. And so then they, they search for hobbies. I could see it going both ways. Something I wanted to ask you about, because you've written about this a lot, and I've been puzzling over this lately, and, and something we've been talking about on the podcast is about relationships with people and how that affects our, our work satisfaction. For years, I played with a symphony orchestra, and, and the thing I hated about a job playing in the symphony orchestra is the conductors. I mean, they're, they're terrible. They're tyrants. They're, you know, we used to say that, uh, that some conductors are evil geniuses, but all are evil. And, you know, they would torture, <laughs> it was terrible. They would torture us. They would, they would they tyrannize. It was the 85 adults who can't go to the bathroom when they need to. It was, you know, everybody was unhappy with every conductor all the time. And, you know, I thought that that was the norm. You know, I went on to have actually some really good bosses. And one of the things that I learned from that and, and, and subsequently from knowing a lot of people in different jobs is that the number one thing that people talk to me about when they don't like their jobs is their boss. Bad bosses spoil things for everybody. Is that true? Well, it's hard to argue with. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of evidence that uh, the bad tends to be stronger than good. And that if you have a toxic boss, it's very easy for that one bad apple to spoil the barrel. I've, I've found, I've studied this a lot in the, the context of my research on givers and takers. 
And, you know, I've, I've found that when you put even one selfish taker in a team, everybody starts to get paranoid because huh. they know that that person is out to get them, right? It's not a delusion. Like that, that person really is trying to screw you over. Uh, and if that person is your boss, you spend a huge amount of time and energy watching your back and, and trying to protect yourself. Whereas if you put one generous giver in a team, you, you don't just see an explosion of selflessness. Uh, more often, you know, people are just like, well, great, that, that person could do all our work. Right. <laughs> and so I, you know, I think at, at some level, screening out bad behavior is, is more important than promoting good behavior. Wow. So relationships really matter a lot and relationships with bosses matter a lot. And this actually makes sense because this is your one of your categories of predicting whether or not somebody loves their job. One is control and autonomy. Another is belonging, a sense of belonging. And that, that obviously has something to do with people. Um, and the last that you've talked about, or the theme that's emerged here is meaning and purpose or sort of the intrinsic motivation that comes from really loving the work. So let's talk about that for a second. Um, how important is it that you have mission alignment? You can really feel like you're improving humanity with your job. Is that important? I think improving humanity is a tall order, right? All I, all I want to do is is help someone today. <laughs> I feel like I, I had a decent day at work. But it is true that if, uh, if you look at all the factors that, that drive job satisfaction uh, and also influence the quality of performance— I, I would put my bet on, on meaning as, as probably the most important. Uh, you know, I think we've, we've all seen cases of, of people who think that their work is trivial, that it just doesn't matter. Uh, just losing motivation, no matter how interesting they thought it was. Uh, we've also seen cases of people doing work that seems, you know, sort of soul-crushing or extremely repetitive, but saying, you know what, it, it serves a larger purpose. And therefore, you know, I, I have a reason to do it. And, you know, I even, I even feel that when I'm answering emails, right? I, I, I come back from a conference with a few hundred emails in my inbox and I am not going to get through those if I think about, you know, well, how, how fun is this, right? How cool is it that my job means I get to answer all these random questions? Hmm. Uh, what, what powers me through it is, is thinking, okay, there are some people out there who are, who are looking for insight and they came to me for, for some reason. And if I can help them, then that, that is hopefully time well spent. And, you know, I think one of the, one of the places that the people lose sight of meaning, we're disconnected from the people who benefit from our work. Uh, so I know, <laughs> I, I hear from readers from time to time, I, I know you do too, but you miss out on a lot of feedback. You don't really know who's reading your work. You don't know how they're reacting to it. And we see this in most jobs, right? How many software engineers actually get to see the users of their, their products? Uh, how many how many teachers get to reconnect with their students five, 10, 15 years later and know their lasting impact? And I think that we need to do a much better job connecting those dots in order to to help people see the meaning that actually exists in their jobs. I would go so far as to say, based on what, what you just told me, that if you want to like your job more and be more engaged, you should go out and find the people that are being touched by your work because the extent to which you're separated from it, you're separating yourself voluntarily or involuntarily, you're not going to get as much satisfaction as you otherwise would. I mean, all of us can 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 find more people that our work touches, right? It should, that shouldn't just be the, the responsibility of the boss, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think it not only drives our satisfaction, it, it has big implications for motivation and, and performance too. So one of the first experiments I ran in grad school was at a, a fundraising call center at the University of Michigan. And, you know, the callers were, were basically harassing alums during dinner and trying to get them to donate. And they had a, a pretty, I think the rejection rate was, was in the high 90s. 
So, you know, you're, you're lucky if a few people out of 100 said yes. And the callers had a terrible time staying motivated. And one of the things I realized was they just had no idea where the money they raised went. And nobody had ever bothered to, you know, to, to show them, hey, you know, all, the, all this work that you're doing, here's, here's the ultimate purpose it serves. And so I designed an experiment where uh, the callers got to meet a scholarship student. And he just came in for five minutes. He said, look, you know, I, I've, I've, Michigan, you know, M- Michigan's in my blood. Uh, my, my sister was conceived after a Michigan football game. I've always, always wanted to go to this school. Uh, but, you know, my parents couldn't afford the out-of-state tuition. And because of the work that you all do, I was actually able to get a scholarship and come here. And I'm really grateful. And I had some callers just, you know, get to interact with him for a few minutes where he told that story. I had a second group of callers that were randomly assigned to read a letter from him as opposed to meeting him face-to-face. And then there was a a third group that was a pure control group, and they got nothing. And that first group, just the five-minute face-to-face interaction, was enough to increase their weekly phone minutes by 142% and their weekly revenue by 171%. And I, I I, I, I thought it would matter, but I was totally unprepared for how much it would matter that, you know, just seeing one person who benefited from your work uh, could have such a dramatic effect on on how hard you worked, how long you worked, and how effectively you worked. And um, the funny thing was the the callers were not even aware of it when I when I interviewed them afterward and surveyed them. Uh, they they did not admit that meeting the scholarship student had anything to do with the change in their motivation because you know no no way meeting one person is going to fundamentally alter the way I approach my job, and yet it it changed the meaning of the way that they they approach those calls instead of. I'm bothering a bunch of alums. It was, I'm trying to help students get scholarships. I have seen that. I have seen that work too. And it's, re- it's incredible how, how much it tracks with, with other examples that I've run across and even talked about. One that, that, that often I found really remarkable was um, in 2013 when Pope Francis was in the United States and he gave this homily for all the bishops, all the American Catholic bishops, the whole congregation was bishops. No civilians were let in. And, uh, and he, 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 had this, he gave this homily. And here's what he said to the bishops. He said that the shepherds need to smell like the sheep. And, and, and what he was saying, of course, <laughs> is that don't be a bunch of bureaucrats. Don't be, you know, you shouldn't talk, be thinking about, you know, counting theoretical sheep in your flock. You should be out there with the sheep. And, and it wasn't just because you'll be a better bishop. It's because you'll be a happier, more engaged bishop, right? Yeah, I, I love that. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because I think the, the question is, you know, okay, so who, who are the people that you're serving? Right. And it's, it's easier to see that in some jobs than others. But one of the questions that I like to, to see people ask is, is just, okay, if my job didn't exist, who would be worse off? And those, those people that come to mind, those are the primary beneficiaries of your work. And those are the people that you want to get to know to define why you work. Yeah. And this is something that we can all do. So what I'm finding, this is really... People often believe to be more engaged at work, to enjoy their work, to get a better job, to find their vocation sort of cosmically. They need to find something where kind of the mission statement matches their own personal moral purpose. But what you're saying is less that than the real purpose of work is nothing amorphous. It's about being needed by other people. It's actually and, – and knowing who those people are. I think so. I think there are always some complications there. So, you know, one of them is you, you have to have credible evidence that, <laughs> that the job has a meaningful and lasting impact on others. 
And, you know, if it doesn't, that's that's when you engage in what my colleagues Amy Resneski and Jane Dutton would call job crafting, where you say, all right, I'm going to I'm going to redesign part of my own job. Uh, I'll add new tasks to the table. I'll uh, I'll find a way to teach a skill to somebody else. I'll figure out where, you know, where my coworkers are struggling and try to pitch in. And, you know, I'll actually kind of tinker with with what my very job is in order to feel like I have meaning because the, you know, maybe the the job description itself doesn't provide that. I think maybe the 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 other wrinkle that that comes to mind here is I you know I I'm not a fan of being needed actually. Uh, I think it's it's a huge burden to a lot of people. Uh, right? If you're if you're needed in your job, uh, you're the person who's constantly on call. Uh, who, you know, the boss is calling at 11 p.m. saying, hey, by the way, uh, I need you to come in to work to uh, to help fight a fire here. <laughs> and I think it I think when we're needed, there's a big risk that we end up sacrificing ourselves for others. I think what what we're looking for actually is is a sense of being valued. Right? Uh, to say that, you know, so, I don't want someone else to be totally dependent on me. I, I want them to be independent, but I want them to appreciate, you know, my my skills and my time enough that, you know, that if I try to help or that if I do some work for them, uh, I feel like it, it it counted in some way. You know, we have a lot of people who are listening to us today who are at the very beginning of their careers. And a lot of them are trying to figure out, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Um, you know, I always, I'm pretty glib about that because I've done a lot of different things. Answer this question for our listeners now. Uh, based on all the work that you've done, if you can, how do you tell people to answer the question, how do I decide what I should do in my career? <laughs> this, is, this is part of why I became an organizational psychologist. I, I had no idea what, it, what I wanted to do, so I thought I'll just study all the jobs that are really interesting, and then I'll get to live them all vicariously. So I'm the, I'm the worst person to answer this, but we actually have an episode coming up in Work Life this season on whether you should follow your passion. Uh, as a preview, the answer is no for most people. But... I think probably the the best advice that uh, that I've encountered on this uh, that that's kind of crystallized my thinking is, I think actually the mistake people make is they they spend too much time looking for a job that's going to make them happy, and happiness is a really high bar. It's also really hard to predict what's going to make you happy until you've before you've experienced the day to day reality of a job. I think what you should actually do is is not look for the job where you think you'll be happiest. You should look for the job where you think you can learn the most. Huh. And what happens is as you as you develop skills, you start to feel more competent. And as you gain a sense of mastery, you enjoy your work more. It's as you know, it's really hard to love something you're terrible at. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, build, building up a sense of expertise is one of the easiest ways to indirectly chart yourself toward happiness, but also toward then having something distinctive to contribute. Wow, that's great. Um so Tell me if I've got the right basic set of categories for deciding whether or not a job is right for me, uh, whether a career is right for me. Number one is look for the right level of control and autonomy. You're not just a cog in the machine. You're not getting ordered around. Find something where you can make your job yours. Is that correct so far? Yep. So far, so good. Okay. Second is find a place where you like the people where you share values, and where there's trust between you and your coworkers. And, and one of your coworkers is your boss, if you can, right? I'm on board. And the third is, and, and this is the tricky one, because, you know, this is, the, this is the, the, the Adam Grant twist on this. You know, every graduation speaker says, follow your passion, and that's what they mean when they say, <laughs> you know, 
get the right job that has the right meaning and the right mission, the right purpose. But you're saying, no, 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 no. That's not it. What you should, when you, meaning and mission should be about serving people and learning a lot. In other words, serve others and earn your success by becoming more and more effective. Is that, is that right? It's hard to argue with that. So these are the instructions I think that you're giving a lot of young people who are listening to us today. Look, there's we, we find alarmingly high rates of work disengagement. A lot of people say they don't like their jobs. They don't find it fulfilling. They, they can't actually see how it, it adds value in any place. On the other hand, not having a job is much, much worse. So look for something not that doesn't necessarily – you know, serve the passions where you're saving the world. You know, don't be so grandiose about it. Find something where you can design an environment where you have some control, where you like the people and trust them, and where you can really serve others and learn a lot. And that's a an easier thing to imagine, isn't it? It sounds like a world of work that I would want to be part of, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> thanks, Adam. And thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thoroughly enjoyed it. We're going to take another quick break now, but when we come back, we're going to talk to the author, William Derezowitz, about how we can choose work that fits our values. So how do we get to a place where we find ourselves in a job we hate, maybe even a profession we hate, where we can't connect or recognize our own values in the work that we're doing? Maybe it goes as far back as college, when we really started making our own decisions about the direction we wanted to go in. How we make those decisions is the subject of a book called Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. It was written by William Derezowitz. He was a professor of English at Yale University for a long time, but gave it all up 10 years ago to go solo with his writing career. He's an essayist and a social critic. He's written in a lot of places like the New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Republic, and he holds a PhD in English from Columbia University. Welcome to the podcast, Bill Derezowitz. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Tell me a little bit about what you were doing before you wrote this book. Tell me about your career as an academic. Actually, let me go back a little farther than I was going to start. I was going to start with starting my PhD program. I, uh, I studied the wrong thing in college. It was the wrong thing because it was the wrong thing for me. Uh, my dad actually was an academic, was a scientist, an engineer, and an immigrant, Jewish immigrant, and he had very specific expectations for his kids, especially his sons. Uh, we could be a doctor. That was our choice. And I studied science in college. You know, I'd loved science. I was a bio major, bio and psychology major. But I realized about halfway through, too late to change majors, that it wasn't really the right thing for me, and I didn't really know how to go about figuring out what was the right thing. And I spent a few years after college kind of wandering around. I, I, I view a lot of that time as wasted. I know we're not supposed to have regrets in American society, but I do regret those choices. And I finally gave myself permission to do what I should always have done, which was to study English Lit. It's what I really, really loved. But nothing in my environment had given me the sense that I was al allowed to do it. So it was only four years after college that I went and did, did my doctorate, got an academic job at Yale, taught there for 10 years. My criticism of the way the system shapes the kids who go to selective colleges and even not selective colleges uh, is not about specific vocational choices. It's not like 
the Ivy Leagues are producing too many bankers and consultants, although I think they are. Uh, it's about the way people make those choices and and the way parents try to impose choices. Um, and it's often about um, parents wanting their children to be a version of themselves. So, But the pattern is not artist, doctor, banker. It's wanting, uh, it's having very specific expectations for who your kid is supposed to be. So this really brings us to your famous book, uh, Excellent Sheep. Give us a synopsis of the book. Yeah, I mean, let's start with the title, which popped unexpectedly, I think, even to her out of the mouth of one of my students. One day in seminar, uh, we were we were talking about something that wasn't even that related, I, I don't think, about solitude and friendship, but I, it, it sparked a moment of kind of collective self-recognition. And she said, are, are you saying that we're all just like really excellent sheep, meaning she and her Yale uh, classmates? Excellent is a really important word to focus on here because what it means in this context when we say that we're looking for excellence or producing excellence in students is that these students who go through this crazy system that we've evolved over the last 50 years where they're racking up as many AP classes as they can and as many extracurriculars and kind of building the ideal resume and fashioning this sort of simulacrum of themselves, this kind of fake persona that they can sell to colleges, we are uh, creating people who are excellent at being students. Like, they're like the greatest students in the history of students, if by that we mean people who can check all the boxes, jump through all the hoops, give the grown-ups what they want. This doesn't necessarily mean that they are curious, that they're adventurous thinkers, that they're creative, that they have any kind of intellectual depth. The system actually militates against that kind of deeper thinking because it forces them to go from one thing to the other day after day, week after week, without being able to immerse themselves in their coursework or in anything else, quite frankly, because they're juggling so many different things. I mean, I think a lot of adults might recognize themselves in some of that description. Yeah. Huh, and right. as a result of that, yeah, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. I mean, really, we're, we are actually, for prepa- us, ironically, right? we're actually preparing them very well. Yeah for the kinds of adulthoods that they're destined for, and that's part of the problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no, for sure. And, and, and yeah. And the way the system works now, really, this is not an exaggeration, this starts probably by seventh grade. Maybe ninth grade if you're lucky, maybe fifth grade if you're not, because if you're going to be in calculus or advanced calculus in 12th grade, you've got to start accelerating all the way back in middle school. Um, you know, it reminds me, I'm, I'm a social scientist, and there's a huge literature on what they call extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation, which, of course, you know that literature really well, too. Extrinsic motivation in all sorts of experiments using human subjects leads to unhappiness or at least to less enjoyment of life. So when you when you pay little kids, you say, you know, here are your, here are your toys. Go play with your favorite toys. And they get that intrinsic joy from it. When you intrinsically, extrinsically motivate them by giving them a cookie to play with their favorite toys, they like their favorite toys less. And you're talking about this <laughs> major societal experiment that shows this, <laughs> right? It's like extrinsically yeah. motivate people. You're going to get a bachelor's degree from Yale, and then you're going to work at Goldman Sachs, and then you're, it's, you know, then you're, maybe right. you can start your own private equity company. Wouldn't that just be great? Then finally, 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 you'll be happy. And you're saying, no, 
you have to find intrinsic motivation where your skills and your passions actually meet. So no matter what you're doing, you actually enjoy that as opposed to postponing your enjoyment forever, right? I Listen, I, I think that's right. And I also think that it, it enables you to create a, a self or a sense of self it has a kind of solidity that you don't have otherwise. I mean, I see this more and more now. You know, I mean, when I was a professor, this was really even before social media took over. So this is, I don't want to go down the whole path of talking about social media, but it's certainly playing into this because it's another system of, of extrinsic validation. And my sense is that it's hollowing people out, right? It's like our cells become flimsier and flimsier when we don't know how to... Um, grant ourselves the approval and validation that we need, and we're always waiting for other people to grant it for us. Hmm. So I think, I mean, we, we can talk about sort of meaningful work and the, and the satisfaction and pleasure of that, and that's appropriate, but I think somehow it goes even deeper than that. Hmm. There's a kind of, as I say, a, a kind of solidity to the self, uh, a, a fullness of the self that, that, you, that you get from, from knowing what you want and pursuing it just because you feel it's the right thing to do. I think you kind of know it when you see it, or more precisely, you know it when you feel it, and I think it's the feeling that you're doing the work that's the right work for you. I think that's about the best way I can say it. Um, you're living the life that seems like your life, and, and, and so, it's, it's, so it's meaningful to you. And again, I, I, uh, I have the optimism that work that's meaningful to you is likely to be Useful and meaningful to other people. Um, if, if I'm to paraphrase the Derezowitz theorem of, of, of happiness is to not to worry about five years from now too much, but to make sure that you're doing what you're called to do right now and to enjoy it as much as you can, right? Yes. Again, easier said than done. And I really want to be clear about this. The, the world doesn't make any guarantees. And... There are people who do exactly what we're talking about, and it doesn't work out so well. I mean, again, this is especially true in the arts. So I don't want any young person hearing this or any young person ever hearing me to think that I'm saying that everything is going to be fine and all they need to do is pursue their dreams. You have to, you have to pay attention to practicalities, you know? But I like to say the world is going to make you compromise, but recognize what a compromises, that word is often used to mean capitulation, you know, and I'm not saying that. I'm saying figure out what you want to do, figure out what the world is going to ask of you, and try to get the second thing as close to the first thing as possible. In the show, I want to go back to the story of my son, Carlos. Last year, Carlos graduated from a prep school in suburban Washington, D.C., where we live, and all of his friends were going off to college. And in fact, Carlos got into a good college in North Carolina with an athletic scholarship. It was really a promising future, but he didn't want to go. He asked, what do you think I should do? On the one hand, I'm an economist. I'm, I'm an academic. Um, my father was a college professor. My grandfather was a college professor. Go to college. It's obvious what I think 
he should do. And, and I also know that college tends to give people kind of a good life, but I want him to live the best life and to be a good man. And that doesn't mean doing something he doesn't want to do if it's not right for him. Furthermore, the plot kind of thickens. You see, I went off to college because it was the right thing to do, or at least it seemed like the right thing to do, and I didn't do well. I dropped my required classes. I was on academic probation. After one year, the college kind of suggested I should earn my success elsewhere. And so I went on the road as a musician and I did what my parents called my gap decade. I wound up back in college when I was in my late 20s and graduated a month before my 30th birthday. You see, I have no credibility in this argument. Carlos, you have to go to college. How hypocritical could I possibly be? I'm torn. I want the best for my son. I remember my own past, but I'm trying to give the right advice. I don't know what to do. So I have a friend in Seattle. He's actually a startup entrepreneur, but he attributes all of his success to having grown up on a farm in Grangeville, Idaho. He comes from many generations of wheat farming. I called him up and I said, I got a problem. Actually, I have an opportunity. My son Carlos wants to work and he wants to work outdoors, and he wants to learn skills, and he wants to work hard. Can you help me? He said, let's call my dad. Maybe he needs a guy. So Carlos and I flew out to Idaho before he graduated from high school, and he loved them, and they loved him. It was kind of a match made in heaven. I got set up with uh, this job. Um, it's a farming job. We, we grow wheat, canola. Um, we grow hay, we have some cattle. I hired him, and that's where he went after high school. That's the sound of a $350,000 combine harvester, which cuts down wheat at the rate of about 60,000 pounds an hour. It's definitely a, a very stressful job driving combine, or really any of those machines, but it, it's, you know, it's... Um, it's definitely a fun job, though. Huh. I mean, if you're not afraid of work, it's definitely a good, it's a good job. Carlos goes to work at 6 or 7 in the morning during harvest, and he works all day long, sometimes 14 or 15 hours. And he loves it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's different work than I've ever done before. And, um, you know, it, I, it, I know in school it wasn't a matter of work ethic, but a matter of interest. And I feel like, like uh, this, I, it really interests me and it gives me something to do. And I really love it because of that. The first time Carlos came back from the farm to visit, he was back for the holidays. And I was kind of wondering how it was going to be. Was he going to go back to his old ways, his frustration, his boredom? What were we going to talk about? Well, it turns out what we talk about is his passion which is his work on the farm. When we don't know what to talk about at supper, we talk about farming. We talk about combines. We talk about how you fertilize the soil. We talk about the animals that he sees, the coyotes on the side of the road and the turkeys he's trying to call in. And he paints this picture. It's vivid. And even though I've never worked on a farm, I haven't spent more than a couple of days on a farm when I visited Carlos. I'm a city boy. I'm from Seattle. I'm a vegan. <laughs> I'm an academic. When Carlos talks about working on the farm, I feel like I'm working on the farm too. Why? Because he's talking about his work from a place of love. I could, right now, I could see myself doing it in the future, but 
you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say anything Yeah. Um, too soon. You can imagine being a farmer. I, I, re- I really could. Do you have any interest in doing what I do for a living? Uh, no, no, I really don't. Um, <laughs> Why not? I, I mean, you know, your past seems to make you happy, but it's, it's not for everyone. So. <laughs> so the idea of sitting behind a desk and writing books and, you know, doing a podcast and teaching at university doesn't sound so great. No, it, it, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't, it, I, no offense, but, but to me, it, it just, it doesn't sound fun. Um, <laughs> You know, I think it's necessary for some people not to take the traditional path of college. When Carlos was in high school and he'd come home from school, I'd say, how was school? And he'd say, fine, kind of in a monotone. Now I talk to him all the time on the telephone. He calls me more than he ever did when he lived with me. And sometimes he's calling from his combine. Sometimes he's calling from home. And I say, Carlos, how's your work? And it's not a monotone. He's He's fully alive. I've never heard him like this before. It's like he went from bored boy to happy man in a matter of months because he loves his work. Our team at AEI is CeCe Gallagher and Nathan Thompson. At Vox Media, Golda Arthur is senior producer, Jarrett Floyd is our engineer, and Nishat Kurwa is executive producer of audio. Our theme music is composed by Gautam Shrikashan. Please rate and review this podcast and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. I'm sure you've got your own stories about taking risks and love, and I want to hear them. Email me at arthurbrookshow at voxmedia.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.